All right, I'm going to do a little family chat before we get going into our sermon this morning, and uh, just have a number of items I want to just touch base on. And the first is just a thank you and a compliment uh, to you. Uh, I feel like this has been a difficult ser- sermon series, both uh, emotionally and also intellectually. There's just a lot of weight uh, in all of this. And so I commend all of you for sticking it out and uh, being here week after week. And of those of you who did extra credit, even by coming uh, to the talks on Sunday night or, or uh, yesterday, um, just great job. And uh, I know this has not always not been easy for everybody. Uh, it hasn't been easy for me necessarily either, but I think uh, the Lord is uh, really meeting us uh, in this place. So I commend all of you. Uh, for sticking it out. And uh, speaking of yesterday, uh, yesterday's donuts and discussion was recorded. And so some of you have asked, you know, is it being recorded? Can I still access it even though I wasn't, uh, wasn't there? And yes, so the donuts and discussion was recorded and it will be available later this week once we're able to put it all together. So just watch your email, it'll come out. There will be no donuts uh, in the email. <laughs> And if you watch it by yourself, there will be no discussion. So there won't be any donuts or discussion, really. But uh, the content uh, will be there. So I encourage you uh, to listen to that. If you are interested, just watch your email. I want to note a change of plans uh, here. When I had kind of put together the sermon series, I was thinking that on this uh, Sunday, I was going to address the issue of transgenderism. And in preparation for that, I've uh, been reading a number of books. I've read three whole books that are just dedicated on that issue, plus another couple books that uh, touch on it substantively. And what I'll just say is that it is an enormously complex issue. And uh, all of these issues we've been talking about are complex, but I, transgenderism is, has an extra layer of complexity to it. And um, so as I was getting ready to prepare the sermon this week, I thought I'm going to have to take some time to define terms and to sort of set the stage. And, and as I began writing, by the end of the day Wednesday, I, I had pretty much an entire sermon that was just defining terms. And I thought, this can't be a, this can't be a sermon because we've got to get into God's Word. So here's what I'm going to do instead. I, I made some changes. Is I'm going to preach from the same passage that I intended to, to preach from uh, on that topic. But I'm not going to try to apply it uh, to transgenderism. There's just too much, there's too many moving parts and definitions that need uh, to be handled uh, with care. So I'm going to preach from the passage and uh, lay out kind of the theological framework that uh, I think is the point of the passage. And then we're going to add a podcast to the podcast series, and we're going to address the implications of this sermon for uh, its relationship to transgenderism. So if that's a topic that is of particular interest to you, uh, then just stay tuned to the podcasts and uh, wait, uh, wait for that. Speaking of the podcast, and this is the fourth uh, point I wanted to, to note, is the podcasts are now up and running. And so there's a, about a 15-minute intro is kind of the, uh, the first one. But then the, the, the second and third full episodes are now available online, and you can get those um, uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just go to the Calvary website, go to the resource page, you'll see This is Calvary. Click on that and it'll take you to the Calvary podcast. So encourage you to listen uh, to those podcasts uh, if, you're, if you're able. Uh, I think there's a lot of good content there that we're not able to get to uh, as fully here in our sermons. And then finally, 
If you are brand new to Calvary, and this is your first time at Calvary, perhaps, I just want to acknowledge the potential awkwardness of dropping into the middle of a sermon series on sexuality and gender preached by a pastor that you, that you don't know. And I don't know how to alleviate the awkwardness of that, except perhaps just to acknowledge that that can be awkward for you. Uh, but this sermon series, the title of it is For the Love of the World. And what we've been trying to, to show and demonstrate throughout the whole series is that our sexuality as human beings is pointing to, is a reflection of God's love that he has for the world. And so uh, my prayer for you, if you're brand new to Calvary and this is your first sermon in this sermon series, or if we've been coming to Calvary our whole lives, my prayer for us has always been that we would come to understand the depths of God's love for us as we consider this topic of human sexuality. And so I'm going to pray to that end for all of us, and then we're going to jump into uh, our scripture reading and our sermon this morning. So I invite you to pray with me. God, thank you for giving us the truth of your word that guides us and leads us. And um, I pray that you would open up our hearts in fresh ways, even this morning, to your guiding and leading. And Lord, uh, you give us all things uh, because you love us and because you want us to know your love. And I pray that even this morning, as we look at this passage of scripture, I pray that we would come away with an increased sense of your love for us and that that would shape and guide our lives, Lord. So be with us this morning, we pray, as we look at your word, guide and lead us by your spirit. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, well, our sermon passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So let me encourage you uh, to get your copy of God's word and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pew rack in front of you. And uh, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, page 955. If you're using the pew rack Bible as you've found it, please uh, stand and let's read uh, God's word together. First Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
All right, as we begin uh, our engagement with this text, let's just take a moment to remind ourselves of where we've been in this sermon series. So our sermon series is based off of Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 23, which teaches us that human sexuality has been created and ordained by God as a type or a sign, or we could think of it as a, a living miniature model that reveals or refers to the relationship between Christ and the church. So when we think about the ways that human beings relate to each other in the sexual realm, as husband and wife, in the covenant of marriage, this is meant to be a picture for us, the way that God and humanity relate the relationship between Christ and the church in the spiritual realm or the heavenly realm which most fundamentally means that human sexuality, insofar as it is a sign that points beyond itself to the gospel, has been given to us as a sign of God's love for the world. God has created human sexuality because he intends it to reveal or to open our imaginations, our eyes, to seeing the way that God loves the world. So this morning we look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. And this text is rich with all sorts of implications. There's so many things that could be said out of this text, and there's so many different angles that we could go. But one of the things that is the focus of this text in particular is the nature of the body. And as I mentioned, this will have then implications for what we think about the subject of transgenderism, but we're not going to try to apply all of this to that particular topic this morning, but the meaning of the body, the nature of the body, this is important for all of us, regardless of whether we're struggling with gender dysphoria or we have questions about transgenderism. So this text, therefore, has relevance for everyone who is embodied, which the last time I checked, that is all of us here. We're here with bodies this morning. So I want to draw three basic truths about the body from this text. We're going to focus primarily on verses 13 and 14. That's where we'll spend most of the time. But we'll be kind of drawing uh, from this whole passage, but 13 and 14. But three basic truths. Our bodies are for the Lord. That's the first truth. Second, the Lord is for the body. And third, our bodies will be raised by God. Now, before we dig into this text, let me just give a brief overview of what's going on in 12 through 20, because we're dropping into the middle of the correspondence between Paul and the church in Corinth. And this is the church, which you might recall from our sermon series on 2 Corinthians. This is the church that Paul started, and then he moved on to other ministry fields. And he's heard about issues that are going on back in Corinth through the apostolic grapevine, as it were. And so he's writing back to the church in Corinth, and he's giving them instructions about how they are to behave relevant to these issues. And one of the issues that he's heard about is the issue of sexual immorality. At least some men in the Corinthian church have been going to the prostitutes. Now, this was such a common practice in the first century world, even for married men, that no one really batted an eye at it. Now, today, most men would try to hide the fact that they were paying for sex. But in the Greco-Roman world, it wasn't considered immoral. Not 
immoral by married men nor by single men to visit the brothels. As long as it didn't get out of hand, no one thought much about it. But Christianity had come along and thrown the red flag on this practice and had insisted that all men converting into Christianity would have to limit their sexual activity within the bounds of marital sexuality. So in this passage, Paul is confronting the Corinthian men on this practice. And to explain the appropriateness, the inappropriateness of this practice, Paul zeroes in on the nature of the human body and its relationship with Jesus. So the nature of the human body and its relationship with Jesus becomes the bedrock foundational uh, concept that Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that will then govern the things that he has to say about sexual morality. So on to our first point. Our bodies are for the Lord. Verses 12 through 13, where we start. Verses 12 through 13, these are a bit notorious uh, for interpreters. You'll notice in the text there are quotation marks in a few places. And the original Greek language, when the New Testament was written, it didn't have quotation marks to set off quotations. So translators have to guess a bit about where to put them in or if even to put them in at all. And you can see here that the translators have put them in at a few places. And the idea with this translation is that Paul is responding to things that the Corinthians have been saying. So the phrase, all things are lawful for me, that's what the Corinthians have said to justify their practices. And then Paul responds with, yeah, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but Paul responds with, yeah, but I will not be dominated by anything. It seems that the Corinthian men have taken the things that Paul has said about Christian liberty and Christian freedom, and they're using it as an excuse for their sexual immorality. Now, Paul isn't necessarily denying what they are saying about Christian freedom. They're probably actually quoting what Paul himself has said. But he's challenging the implications that they are reaching. In particular, I want to focus our attention on verse 13. I think this verse is probably best read as Paul's own statement. And verse 13 most literally reads, food for the stomach, the stomach for food. Paul is getting ready to address the sexual immorality of the Corinthian men, and so he uses a comparison with food as a setup to what he wants to say. And Paul is bringing up food and stomachs because this is the basic way that the Greco-Roman culture thought about the human body and the sexual appetite. So I've got some slides here to try to help us keep track of the parallels that Paul is working from. In the Greco-Roman mind, just like food was for the stomach, the human body of the other was for satisfying one's own sexual appetite. So human bodies had other purposes beyond sex, of course, in the ancient world. But a primary purpose of the body was to be food for the sexual appetites of another. And this was especially true in the Greco-Roman world for female human bodies, and doubly especially true for the bodies of female prostitutes, which is what the context of this passage 
is about. In the Greco-Roman world, the body of female prostitutes was worth nothing more than food to feed the male sexual appetite. We all should be horrified at that. But before we wag our fingers at the first century context, let's acknowledge that this is the way that our culture thinks about the sexual appetite and sexual desire. We have taught ourselves to think about sexual desire as a bodily appetite, not meaningfully different than our own culinary appetites. So the stomach needs food, the genitals need sex. Just as I need to consume food, I need to consume sex. Just as I can't live without food, I can't live without sex. But in our conflation of these two appetites, we've reduced each other to food that we consume. And we've reduced sex down to an activity that I engage in to satisfy me, not, to, not as a gift to give to the other. Now, there's a whole sermon worth of application right here on this point, but Paul hasn't even got to the main point that he's making yet, so we're going to keep moving. And it's from this vantage point that he turns to bodies and sex. He's going to insist that human bodies are not most fundamentally food to satisfy the sexual appetites of others. But before he says what the body is for, he says in verse 13 what the body is not for. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. See that in our second slide. And it makes sense to us that reducing people to food, to objects of exploitation, like what happens in prostitution, isn't what the body is for. Sexual immorality is not an equitable or honorable way to treat other human beings. But if the body isn't for sexual immorality, what is the body for? Well, most naturally, I would expect, maybe you would expect as well, Paul to say this, slide three. The body is for marital sex. And that would make sense. But that isn't what he says. This is what he says. Slide four, he says, the body is for the Lord. What does Paul mean when he says that the body is not for sexual immorality, that it's not even for marital sex, but that is for Jesus? All right, now everyone buckle up uh, your seat back, your, your, uh, your seatbelt, because this is going to get a little bit heady. I feel even a little heady uh, for me. And uh, I wanted to try to like bring it down as best I could. And I've tried that, but just hang in there. Take the hand of the person next to you. And uh, we're all going to get through it uh, together. But here we go. In verse 13, Paul uses the exact same sentence construction to describe the relationship between the body and the Lord that he uses to describe the relationship between food and the stomach. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. Body for the Lord, the Lord for the body. Paul is wanting us to think about the relationship of the body to Jesus in a way that is analogous to the way we think about the relationship of food and stomach. So let's think a little bit about the relationship between food and stomach. The stomach gives food its reason 
for existence. Food would not exist as food if it weren't for the stomach. So consider the humble pine cone. The humble pine cone is the non-edible seed-bearing fruit of a pine tree. So apple trees have apple fruit and pine trees have pine cone fruit. But the pine cone is not food precisely because it provides no nutritional advantage to the human stomach. It exists, but it doesn't exist as food. But what if all of a sudden humans developed the miraculous capacity to eat pine cones, such that pine cones became as tasty and nutritious for us as apples? The physical structure of the pine cone wouldn't change, but its identity would change. It would become food. The pine cone's entire telos and reason for existence would change. It would no longer be a humble, non-edible carrier used to decorate our Christmas hearths. It would be tasty, nutritious food. So here's the principle regarding food and the stomach. All food is defined externally according to the human stomach, according to its suitability to the stomach. Or we can say it in this way, food derives its identity, its purpose for existence from the stomach. And Paul is making a parallel point here about the body. In the same way that food derives its identity externally from the stomach, so too the human body derives its identity, its purpose for existence externally from the Lord. Which is to say, my body isn't what I say my body is. My body is what Jesus says my body is. Here Paul is not simply asserting Jesus' lordship over the body, though that is certainly an obvious implication. When Paul tells us that the body is for the Lord, he is insisting that from the very beginning, when God created human bodies... He created human bodies to find their identity, their natural telos or end in the body's relationship with Jesus. Just like food is food because of the stomach, rather than just a blob of plant matter, human bodies are human bodies because of Jesus, rather than just a blob of animal matter. Because apart from our identity in Jesus, our bodies are just that. They're just blobs of animal biological matter. There's no inherent dignity to the human body if it is not an inherent dignity that comes from the fact that the body is for the Lord. Now, this truth doesn't answer every question about how our bodies should be used, but it does establish a foundational baseline truth that lays claim to how we consider and conceive of ourselves as embodied. Our bodies are for the Lord in the same way that the food is made for the stomach. Now, that's the first point, which really is a setup for this second point. The Lord is for our bodies. And here's where I think it gets really good. 
In verse 13, Paul says that not only is the body for the Lord, but a bit surprisingly, he says that the Lord is for the body. Now, what does this mean? We keep in mind the parallel between food and stomachs that Paul is working with. There's an inherent reciprocity between food and stomachs. Just as food finds its identity, its purpose for existence, and its usefulness to the stomach, so too the stomach is satisfied and sustained by food. Which means that just as food depends upon the stomach for its identity, the stomach depends upon food for its ongoing existence. Now, what can this mean then as we think about the relationship paralleled between food and stomach and body and the Lord? Well, in my second sermon in this series, I talked about gender and power. We talked about the Christ church relationship. And I, I made the point about the mutual dependence that exists between head and body, between Christ and church. The body of Christ is the means by which Jesus extends his reign out into the world. So Augustine, the great church father, he spoke of the relationship between Christ as the head of the church and the church as the body of Christ. He referred to this, this relationship as the totus Christus, the total Christ. And his point was that the whole Christ is not just head, but head and body together. If you want to conceive of the whole Christ, you have to think of the head and body together. And that means that the body of Christ is not just some appendage that Jesus brings along as he does his work. The body of Christ is the very means by which Christ does his work in the world. So to put it even more strongly, if all of humanity contained in the church, which is the body of Christ, were lost to hell, Christ's own humanity would have failed because we are his body. He's that connected to us. The continued existence of Christ's body is now linked to the embodied humanity of the church. So his deity does not depend upon us, but he has tied his humanity to our humanity. And now his humanity and our humanity rise and fall together. We are the body literally, of Christ. So let's connect this back to food and stomachs. The stomach defines the identity of food as food. And in turn, food satisfies the needs of the stomach. In the same way, the fundamental meaning of the human body, not just the human soul, but the human body, is not its capacity to satisfy the sexual appetite of another, but rather its capacity to satisfy the spiritual appetite of the Lord. When my human body is filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus, when my human body becomes a member of Christ's human body, when my human body goes from being a humble, non-edible pine cone to a succulent piece of fruit divinely desired by Jesus himself. This is the purpose and the meaning of the body. 
Or in the words of verse 19, when my body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. And this truth takes us back and takes Paul back into the typology that has been framing our entire series. He's, he's working from a typological framework here in this passage, just like we saw in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is saying that our bodies were fundamentally made for Jesus, to satisfy him, to be a home for his spirit. Jesus took up residency in humanity when he incarnated, and he offers himself to humanity in an act of spiritual marriage. And the church is that portion of humanity that has said yes to Jesus' invitation to marriage. And the portion of humanity in which Jesus' spirit dwells in a body. And that's the whole point of the human body, Paul is saying. Our bodies were made not for sexual immorality, not even for sex and earthly marriage. Our bodies were made to be filled with Jesus. So this is why in verse 15, Paul asked the Corinthians, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That's what your body is for, to become a member of Christ. Or verse 17, he says that Christians have become one spirit with the Lord in a way that fulfills the earthly one flesh unions. Or in verse 19, he says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We were created to be the dwelling place of God, that the Spirit of God would come and inhabit our physical bodies. That's why our bodies have been made. And Paul is saying that our spiritual union and oneness with Jesus is the whole point of why we have bodies. So to say this as plainly as I can, sexual gratification is not the meaning of the body. Jesus is the meaning of the body. When your body becomes a living temple for his Holy Spirit, that's the truest and deepest purpose of your body. So this is why Paul, later in chapter 7, he's going to go on to suggest that singleness in Christ is actually better than earthly marriage. Because it's when the Holy Spirit of Jesus takes up residency in our physical bodies that the truest meaning of our physical bodies is realized. Earthly sex and marriage are just types and signs of this truer, more fundamental union. Now, Paul will also, in chapter 7, say it's okay that most of us have a hard time conceiving of how spiritual intimacy with Jesus is better and more fulfilling than sexual intimacy in marriage. And Paul readily acknowledges that God, in this age, isn't requiring everyone to be lifelong celibates. Everyone has his or her own gift, Paul says. This requirement of celibacy that Paul has embraced, he said, God is, Christ has asked this of me, and God asked it of Jesus, and God asks it of some of us at some times. But this is unusual. This is a particular grace when he asks, when he requires it of us. Right? And Paul says that God doesn't require it of all of us in the way that Paul and Jesus have lived into it. 
Marriage, Paul says, in this age is the most natural way for humans to learn about the connection between human sexuality and the gospel. And so Paul commends marriage to everyone as a matter of course. But I want to acknowledge that we live in a cultural context where many Christian singles find themselves not by their own choice or desire, and not because God has required it uniquely of them in particular, having to live a celibate life. And unchosen celibacy is indeed genuinely difficult. And God looks on your situation with sympathy. But whether we're married, single by choice, or single by circumstance, God wants all of us to see that the truest meaning of the body the reason we were born with bodies is found in our union with him. So the punchline of all this is summed up in verse 19. At the end, Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Most fundamentally, God is asking us to understand that our bodies were made for him, to be filled with him, to become united with him. Our bodies were not made for our own sake or for our own independent use. My body, your body, has most fundamentally been made as a home, a habitation, a dwelling, a temple in which the spirit of Jesus can dwell. So the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. There's a reciprocity that exists between our body and Jesus that transcends the reciprocity that exists between our bodies and another physical sex, sexed body. Our bodies exist for the Lord. Now let me conclude by offering a few reflections related to body image. I don't know how you feel about your body. Some of us are fine with our bodies and don't think too much about it, but many of us are not fine with our bodies. We look at the bodies that the world prizes and then we look in the mirror and we see the disparity. And to the degree that the disparity distresses us, that may be a sign, it may be a sign that we are still defining our bodies too narrowly as merely food for sex. Because that's how our culture defines the fitness of the body, still especially the fitness of the female body. Instagram, social media, movies, celebrity culture, all the bodies that we see on screens all throughout our lives are beautiful bodies, and they're considered beautiful bodies because they are fit as food for the sexual appetite. The more closely they become desirable sexually to satisfy the sexual appetite, the more they are considered beautiful and fit. And that becomes the standard by which we judge our own bodies and we fall into the trap of thinking, like our culture does, about our bodies as primarily food for sex. But what if we came to a place of truly believing that our bodies weren't fundamentally made for sexual union? with another sexed body, but for spiritual union with Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't care about whether our bodies are fit for the cover of men's health or cosmopolitan. That just isn't important to him. He loves you, and he wants to dwell within you, regardless of how the world judges your physical beauty. He doesn't love you because he loves your body. He loves your body because he loves you. It's his love for you that causes him to love and care for and desire to inhabit your body as a temple. The Lord is for your body because he is for you. I'm getting to be a bit of a broken record on this point. I'm just going to come back and I'm going to say it again. Sex and marriage are beautiful gifts from God, and they can help us see this truth when done well. When a husband and a wife learn to love each other beyond the body and learn to love each other's bodies because the body of the other is the expression of the person that they love, that's how Jesus loves us, and it's a picture of that. But however beautiful sex and marriage can be, they are only shadows of the true union that fills us up and makes us whole. Our bodies were not fundamentally made for sexual union. They were made for spiritual union with Jesus. It doesn't mean that our souls were made for spiritual union. Our bodies were made for spiritual union. Our bodies are the container that holds the spirit of Jesus to come and unite himself with us. Sexual union is just a picture to help us see what this spiritual union is like. So if you have spiritual union with Jesus, however challenging it may be to live without sexual union, and I I think that can genuinely be challenging, you nonetheless have everything that the human body was created for. In verse 14, Paul tells us that God will raise our bodies just as he raised the Lord's body, which is exactly what we should expect because our bodies constitute the bodies of Christ. If God left our bodies in the grave, that would be leaving Jesus's body in the grave. And so God promises resurrection unto life for all those who are in Christ. And that is good news for all of our bodies. But it's especially good news for those of us who feel unhappy with our bodies or disconnected and at odds with our bodies. There is coming a day when God will bring into full beauty each of our human bodies. And he will bring harmony to the sense of dislocation that many of us, especially those of us who struggle with gender dysphoria, feel about our bodies. John 14, Jesus speaks of the covenant relationship that he is creating between God and humanity. And Jesus says that the desire of God is that he would be able to come and dwell within us to make his home within us. The goal of redemption for human bodies, what God is about with our body, is he is making our bodies a suitable home for the divine life. And that in making our bodies a home for Christ, our bodies would become a suitable 
and perfect home for us, too. So if there's nothing else that you gain from this sermon this morning, the one thing that I pray you would gain from this sermon is that God wants to come and make his home with you, in you, because he loves you. He wants to be united to you in the most intimate way that is possible. He doesn't love you because of your body. He loves your body because he loves you. And he will care for your body and raise it up on the last day because he cares for and loves you. So let's not take our bodies and chase after the ways that this world teaches us to chase after, to reduce the meaning of our body to just being food for another human body. Let's see our bodies as for the Lord. Let us learn from him step by step to see that the truest meaning of our bodies is in our relationship with him. God, that's a, that's a big ask. And it's hard for us to see past the way that the world teaches us to think about our bodies. And we're so quick to try to find the identity and meaning and purpose of our bodies in, in human culture constructs that leave us always just feeling inadequate and even if we can achieve it, we can't hold on to it because age takes it away. God, help us to find the meaning of the body in our relationship with you, that to be filled up with the Spirit of Christ is the fullness of what our body is for. Teach us that, Lord, through marriage. Teach us that through celibacy. Teach us that through unwanted singleness. But God, teach us of yourself, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.